Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining our webinar today on weathering the fiscal storm, how colleges and universities can survive in the post-COVID-19 era. My name is Lindsay Burke, and I am the Director of Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. For decades now, American higher education has been facing, facing an untenable fiscal situation brought on by increasing administrative bloat and an ongoing facilities arms race. Consider, for example, the growth in non-teaching staff over the decades. As the National Association of Scholars points out, non-instructional staff and administrative positions now account for more than half of university payroll costs. The coronavirus pandemic did not create these problems, but the pandemic is now exacerbating these challenges and impacting universities' bottom line. Endowments, tuition revenue, charitable contributions, and state appropriations have and will continue to be impacted by the economic effects of business shutdowns that were precipitated by the virus. But colleges have needed a fiscal course correction for decades, and having failed to rectify years of mismanagement, they should not expect Washington to bail them out. They must begin an internal course correction now. Here to talk about how to do this today, we have an excellent panel of higher education scholars. But before I invite them on, uh, we have a few housekeeping notes to go through today. This session is being recorded and will be emailed to you and posted on heritage.org within 48 hours. You can submit questions as well in the Q&A box that you see to your right. Uh, if you would, please identify yourself, your name, and your organization, and we will answer as many of those questions as we can. Uh, and you are all in listen-only mode at the moment. So I'd like to go ahead and invite our panelists on uh, to the platform now. If you go ahead and turn on your cameras. We have a really excellent group joining us today. Uh, we'll kick off with Michael Polyakov. Dr. Polyakov is the president of the American Council of Trustees and Alumni. He'll be followed by Heidi Ganahl, who is an entrepreneur, a regent at the University of Colorado, uh, and a board member of the American Council of Trustees and Alumni. Uh, we'll hear from Andrew Gillen, who's a senior policy analyst in the Center for Innovation and Education at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, as well as Dr. Matthew Spaulding, who's vice president of Washington Operations and dean of the Van Andel Graduate School of Government at Hillsdale College. Before I hand it over to Dr. Polyakov to kick us off, I would like to invite you as the audience to complete a quick poll. This is going to be an interactive session today. We're gonna to test your knowledge of American higher education policy. So here's our first poll question. You can take 30 seconds to fill this out. What percentage of Americans age 25 and older currently hold a bachelor's degree? Is it 25%? 35%, 45%, or 55%? Great, and as you're wrapping that up, I will go ahead and turn it over to Dr. Polyakov. I think you may be muted. Good morning, and thank you to the Heritage Foundation, and, and thanks to you, Lindsay. You've, uh, as always, framed the question with great clarity and astuteness. 
I, I want to avoid uh, acting like the man in Aesop's fable who stands at the bank of a river scolding a boy for falling in and drowning. Uh, we need to pull the uh, boy to the bank and uh, make sure that we don't continue the problems that we've had. Which brings me to another Aesop fable, that of the ant and the grasshopper. The ant is industriously working, the grasshopper is singing all through the summer, and then when winter comes, the grasshopper suffers the consequences. Uh, so three points that I really want to emphasize today. Uh, the crisis that we have right now is very real, and it's jeopardizing one of the great engines of American progress and prosperity. And to use your term, Lindsay, we need to get a course correction, and it's got to be deep and totally penetrating. Second point, many of the wounds are self-inflicted wounds that come from bad habits, foolish choices over the years. And third, this is the most important point that I want to raise, the rescue operation must not perpetuate a dysfunctional status quo. What emerges from this disaster has to be a better, more efficient, and much more effective higher education. So I'm actually gonna go back to 2009. We're reeling from the recession, and the Chronicle of Higher Education published an article whose title said it all. In a time of uncertainty, colleges hold fast to the status quo. <clears throat> so there's a financial meltdown, and colleges and universities scrambled to do everything possible to maintain the same bad habits that they had before. And they got another warning in 2011 from the visionary architect of disruptive innovation, Clayton Christensen, who predicted that within 15 years, half of the colleges and universities were closed or would close or merge. And higher education responded with a lot of eye rolling and a lot of singing like the grasshopper in Aesop's fable during the, um, the warm summer. And uh, let's look a little bit more at these self-inflicted wounds. Uh, Non-instructional spending rose 35%, that's $34 billion since 2010. Space tripled from the 1970s, used to be about 150 square feet per student, and now it's more like 450. Uh, in 2015, we reached a high watermark of um, $11.5 billion and 21 million square feet of new space. And all that time, campus space was growing uh, in such a way as to outpace enrollment growth. And it gets worse. Uh, I've been tracking for some time uh, Berkeley's Office of Equity and Inclusion. This is not a organization that gives scholarships to attend Berkeley. In 2017, its budget was $25 million. Now it's $34 million. These are things that do not help students in the way that they need help, bringing them to campus, enabling an education. And then there's something that the late Betty Capaldi Phillips, uh, former provost of the University of Arizona State University, called the cost of chaos in the curriculum. Hundreds, if not thousands, of, uh, of under-enrolled, often nugatory courses, like um, Mean Girls, the movie, The Phenomenon, or Teen Girls in Popular Culture, Lady Gaga, Harry Potter, Vampires. Now, this would be funny at a time, perhaps, when people could afford it, even though it was rather corrupting and corrupting to the brain, but there's no longer money for this kind of foolishness. There's no longer money for the leisurely teaching loads of four courses or less per year. It's interesting to see that McMurray College, which sadly is closing, um, was spending 76 cents um, on administration for every dollar that it spent on instruction, and its tuition went up between 2009 and 2018, 29%. What Clayton Christensen warned about, pointing out the dysfunction, was very real. So now here we are. Um, even before the pandemic hit in February of 2019, the Chronicle published an article called At the Precipice, pointing out that two thirds of the universities 
didn't meet their anticipated revenue, and six out of 10 didn't meet their anticipated enrollment. Moody's has lowered the um, bond rating from stable to negative. Schools anticipate a 20% reduction in, in fall enrollment. We are in a very bad position. Um, let me wrap up um, by giving some ideas for how we get out of it. Let's start thinking in terms of a 90 credit hour baccalaureate degree. Why do students need a third of their time spent on electives that are often frivolous and simply raise the cost of operation? Schools need to use their campus space better. Uh, try firing a cannon um, in a academic building on a Friday afternoon, because you probably won't hit anybody. Um, and this has to stop. It's bad for morale. It's bad for training for the workforce. There are models to follow. Mitch Daniels has kept inflation adjusted tuition actually down 8% since 2012. Michael Crow saves $13 million a year having merged or and reorganized academic departments. There are ways out of this mess, but they're gonna take courage, the guts to cut. Uh, they're gonna take uh, the kind of instructional um, investment and administrative reduction that higher education has un been unwilling to do. That's the way forward. Great. Thank you, Dr. Polyakov. Uh, that was a really great overview. Uh, we hear so often about having intestinal fortitude. It sounds like we also need instructional fortitude. So well said there. there. Uh, I'd like to hand it over to, to Heidi Ganal to, to take it uh, from there. Thank you, Lindsay. And thank you, Michael. That was very insightful. Um, and I, I know we agree on a lot of those um, suggestions. I'm a regent at the University of Colorado. At Color In Colorado, we elect our board of regents. So um, I was elected statewide in 2016, and I'm three years into a six-year term as regent. We have nine regents that oversee the university system, and we manage about a $5 billion budget, probably going to be smaller this year, based on what's going on. And we don't get a lot of state funding here. Um, I think it's about eight or nine percent of our budget comes from the state. I think we rank 48th um, in the uh, state funding formula nationally. So our position here in Colorado is a bit political, it's a bit edgy, but we do have the ability to make change and do dramatic things if we can get the board aligned and voting that way. So um, I'm going to talk a couple minutes for about what I think needs to happen based in, it's very similar to what Michael says, but then I want to talk about the workforce of the future and how that ties in. So I agree, Michael, administrative bloat is a huge issue. We've got to figure that out and decrease expenses dramatically on that front and put the dollars back in the classroom. We need a lack, we need a tr uh, transparency to do so. There's a lack of transparency for regents and trustees, in my experience, um, when you go to look at the data and really dig in and find the detail, which as a CEO and an experienced entrepreneur and CEO, I mean, you, you can't manage what you don't measure. And the um, complexity of these organizations is very difficult to weed through to find the information that you need to make good decisions about how to manage um, your money and cut expenses when you need to. I agree on the arms race. We've got to quit building physical buildings and invest in adaptive learning, experiential learning, and providing a connection to K through 12 where we can get more kids um, getting credits in high school and um, the ability to transfer those so they, they spend less time on campus once they're out of high school. And then finally, innovation and delivery. We've got to, to just go all in on that front. And the COVID virus is forcing us to do that in a lot of ways, but there's going to be a lot of fallout from that. And there's still a lot of tension and pushback um, in my experience from faculty and administrators on doing so. And it's very expensive to do that too. A lot of um, parents are reaching out to us and saying, you know, are we going to have lower tuition rates because if it's all online? And, the reality is that it can be more expensive to deliver online education, um, but the experience certainly doesn't feel as good as being live. And so that's um, a tension between parents, um, students, and the universities right now. But you know, I sometimes ask my eight-year-old twins, what do you wanna be when you grow up? And the answers are quite entertaining. Um, last night I got a firefighting ninja barbecue chef from my eight-year-old boy, or from my girl, a vet veterinarian ballerina mom. 
Well, what I know as a leader in higher ed is that um, they'll likely hold jobs that don't even exist right now. It might be a 3D printed food chef or a cryptocurrency banker, bio waste optimizer. 85% of jobs in 2030 haven't even been invented yet. So what we need is an urgency, a sense of urgency around innovation and pushing. I think the last time I asked um, our administration how long it took to develop a new degree at CU, it was four years. Well, a degree in four years will be obsolete from anything that we developed today. So, you know, I think it's exciting and scary and daunting, but we've got to grab the future and just run with it and do very innovative, big, bold things right now in higher ed. And in order to do that, we need to free up expense. You know, we need to free up dollars and resources to do so. So we've got to cut expenses around traditional things that um, normally we wouldn't be allowed to touch. And we need to break down the barriers between industry and education. You know, schools aren't necessarily building that bridge and industry is being forced to do that for them. Amazon recently announced it would spend $700 million to retrain one third of its workforce. Um, we've got to connect industry and higher ed and, and, and make sure there's um, a bold vision for how we can create the workforce of the future. And then finally, we need to change the way we approach hiring as employers and CEOs. Um, in an interesting twist, Google, Apple, and IBM have done away with re degree requirements in many positions. Instead, they're focusing on skills like critical thinking and team building and collaboration, and you know, which a traditional liberal arts education does supply, but we've gotten away from that in some of the classes that Michael mentioned and some of the programs that we offer. So it's important that we um, you know, think about that as we create the programs and initiatives that we're going to move forward with, whether online or in person. So lots of work to do. I'm very honored to be part of this panel. If, if anyone has the answers, it's this group right here. Thanks, Lindsay. Great, thanks, Heidi. You know, I, I love my job, but your kids make my job sound really boring with what they're <laughs> envisioning for the jobs of the future. That's amazing. Uh, great, well, uh, before we move on, next we're gonna hear from uh, Dr. Matthew Spalding at Hillsdale. But before we do that, I would like to throw another poll question out to the audience. So if you would take a second, this is uh, more of uh, an opinion engagement poll. Who should be responsible for paying off a student loan? The student who took out the loan or taxpayers through student loan forgiveness? Great. So as you're wrapping that up, we will turn it over to Dr. Spalding. Thanks, uh, Lindsay, and uh, thank you for putting this together. This is a great, this is a great group that hopefully uh, these kinds of discussions will lead to some great thinking. I was, I was struck by, uh, between we first talked about this and now, uh, not only do we have to get through the fiscal storm but a, a, a cultural storm that is uh, largely, in my opinion, the responsibility or the fault, if you will, of the modern educational system. And those two storms really have revealed a lot of what we're, uh, what we're talking about here. I mean, the modern universe is a petri dish of really bad ideas. And uh, we're now seeing that bleeding out um, figuratively and, and unfortunately sometimes literally into our, our uh, uh, other parts of our society um, and universities, public inter public schools especially, but a lot of uh, private schools are uh, largely responsible for that. I think the other thing that's being revealed by the, these storms is the extent to which the educational system, a uh, higher educational system, is a closed system, uh, largely because of how money has distorted it, both in terms of uh, public money but, uh, but private money as well. I mean, a lot of the worst schools, both in terms of quality and the ideas coming out of them that are disrupting American society, are really not institutions of higher education anymore at all. They are really merely uh, schools, uh, technically with a hedge fund, uh, you know, and the, the school is the, is the, is the tail. Um, but this closed system is, is, is not innovative it, and it has really no ability to adapt. And all it wants to do is maintain the status quo, which is why most people are talking about how do we bail it out. Uh, 
you put these two things together, the, 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 this fiscal crisis and this cultural crisis, uh, and the, those two situations, and I think that really is the, the source of the main source of our problem. Um, you know, government money has distorted the system, but also those schools are increasingly not allowing uh, free speech and uh, freedom of assembly, and in many cases, religious liberty, the, 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 uh, the, the strengths of, of modern academic, uh, academic freedom. Um, so you know, in light of that, what, how, do we, how do we manage this, uh, this fiscal storm, which is really not a storm, it's more about kind of what it, uh, what it, what it reveals. So with, with that in mind, I'd like to suggest in, in kind of the, in the name of doing some small changes that might nudge it in the right direction. I've got some ideas to put on the table, recognizing that as a caveat, uh, government uh, should really do nothing to help uh, or do anything about these schools unless they first maintain their first job, which is to provide for uh, free speech, freedom of assembly, and freedom of religion. But having said that, uh, some practical ideas in, in two categories, I, I suggest two broad areas. One is financial reform. Um, you know, rather than giving taxpayer money to colleges and universities, the, uh, what, I, what I put in the category of a bailout, uh, it seems to me that we should make it easier for uh, private money to go to those institutions. Uh, don't give money directly to them, but make it, uh, make it more of a market choice. The problem with the higher education is it's not a market. It's a big business. It makes a lot of money, especially the private ones. Um, it's bureaucratic. We should treat it like a, a market. Uh, in my opinion, uh, uh, self-correction is no longer possible. It's going to have to come through uh, various forces that are going to encourage you to do so. One of them is a market. Uh, don't throw money at it. Uh, create an opportunity for private money, of which there's a lot in, in the American system, uh, to go to those and reward those uh, that are innovative and good schools and allow them to build up a private donor base to uh, support their work. So, for instance, in the CARES Act, uh, large cash, cash gifts were allowed to be given at 100% deduction. Uh, well, that should be extended at the very least, but also you'd expand it to include things like CRTs and gift annuities. The tax system is full of ways you could innovatively allow private money to influence the, uh, especially the private educational market. Uh, that would be that would be good. Uh, I, I'm sure we'll this one up later, but the idea of forgiving student loans, which I think is a is a is a crazy idea. But uh, you know, if if you were even going to go down that uh, path, an, an alternative would be to create financial incentives for private donors to give money to schools to set up their own uh, loans and uh, private ways to fund their students at places like we do uh, at Hillsdale College. Um, Allow parents to give more money to their 529 accounts and set, and set aside money to do so. Uh, and the last thing I'd put in this category is this point about uh, taxing endowments. Uh, there was a, the Republicans put this in their tax bill to tax endowments because they wanted to go after these big uh, hedge funds with schools attached. I don't blame them. But having said that, it seems to me that we should be actually, in a, uh, we should be encouraging, incentivizing private schools uh, and, and others, for that matter, to build up endowments and use that endowment for the purpose they're intended. Uh, and giving government the power to tax those endowments is to quote John Marshall, a tax is the power to destroy. And I would just remind all of uh, our, uh, our friends who favored the taxing of endowments that we have given uh, the government, as perhaps at one point to be in the hands of those who are opposed to us, the power to uh, destroy the institutions we love. Uh, the second broad area I'd mentioned is uh, regulatory reform, which I'll make make two two suggestions. Um, one, it seems to me that there should be a period in which we suspend or radically radically streamline uh, accrediting requirements, uh, so that colleges uh, and universities could do what any other business would do in this kind of environment, namely uh, do acquisitions and mergers. Um, it's extremely hard for that to happen nowadays. But a lot of these schools that are going under, and I'm speaking, thinking especially, not about the big rich ones that have huge endowments, not about the ones that uh, are, are public, uh, but the ones that are gonna die here are gonna be those small and medium-sized 
colleges and universities throughout the country that are still pretty decent and would like to provide a decent education. They're going to go under. Why don't we allow them to merge? Why don't we allow them to have buyouts? Why don't we allow one to sell it to, uh, sell it to another and make it easy to do so and create a period of innovation where they're allowed to do this very flexibly uh, without the heavy hand of the, the accreditors who essentially kind of want to run things. Um, uh, the other thing I put in the category of regulatory reform is to set up ways so that schools can be innovative. And this has already come up, uh, many people have talked about it, but the idea of allowing schools to uh, do more with uh, new instructional delivery systems, the online world. Uh, again, you could deregulate that, allow a window to allow schools to experiment with this uh, in ways that allow them to approach those kinds of uh, those innovations. And I think that would be great. One thing we learned is that uh, online, we do a lot of online courses as it is. Uh, having gone to online with our students, we learned that there are a lot of things that could be used for it, um, although there are a lot of things for which it, it is uh, not uh, not very uh, good, at, uh, good at all. Um, which leads me to just one last point. I would, as a caveat, suggest that we uh, do not overly embrace online education. Indeed, we'd be very careful with that um, because doing too much, it's a, it's a tool, it's a source of innovation, but uh, doing too much actually pushes in the wrong direction. There's a big difference between using online uh, tools for sharing information, uh, for instructing, but as you kind of move up from from in, uh, information to instruction to education to higher education becomes less and less uh, useful. And I think that if anything in this COVID world, this is what more people have learned, which is why rightly so, people who pay amazingly high uh, tuition rates uh, going to online education think they, they're not getting their money for their buck. Let me just uh, conclude with a, a great quote uh, one of my colleagues uh, sent me the other day from John Henry Newman. Uh, Recreations are not education. Accomplishments are not education. Do not say that people must be educated when, after all, you only mean amused, refreshed, soothed, put into good spirits and good humor are kept from vicious success. Liberal education is a high word. It is the preparation for knowledge. It is the imparting of knowledge in proportion to what? To that preparation. We require intellectual eyes to know with all as bodily eyes for sight. We need both objects and organs intellectual. We cannot gain them without setting about it. We cannot gain them in our sleep or by a haphazard. The best telescope does not dispense with eyes. The printing press or lecture room will assist us greatly, but we must be true to ourselves. We must be parties in the work. In, doing, in all this, I think we need to keep in mind differences of education, and keep in mind our objective, which is ultimately to uh, strengthen the American educational system at its appropriate levels, and especially protect the crown jewel of Western educational system, which is uh, a liberal education, the things that truly liberate us to be free, uh, free citizens in this great republic. Thanks. Great, thank you, Dr. Spotting. I, I think you probably have the quote to beat so far for this panel, which is that colleges, some of them are a petri dish of bad ideas with a hedge fund connected to them. So uh, we'll, we'll try to see if anybody beats that. Uh, before we hand it over to Dr. Gillen at TPPF, uh, we'd love to put a, another a third poll question up for everybody. How many Americans older than 62 currently hold student loan debt? Is it 20,000 Americans, 200,000 Americans? 2 million Americans or none? Older than 62. Okay. And now, Dr. Gillen, we turn to you to uh, close us out on the formal remark. Well, thank you. Uh, so my my fellow panelists have done a great job explaining what colleges should be doing and, and what kind of more productive paths forward look like. Um, my sort of contribution, I think, is playing a little bit of defense to, to kind of ward off some bad ideas. 
Um, and a lot of those bad ideas are taking the form of, of uh, bailouts of, of higher education. And so we've already seen as part of the CARES Act about $14 billion uh, uh, bailout. And the structure of that was kind of interesting because half of it was to be given to students. Uh, and then the other half, roughly half of it uh, was given to students. And then the, the, the rest of it was given to directly to institutions. And so that, that resulted in some very strange outcomes because on the student side, the, the act basically just let students postpone their debt payments. Um, and so I think until September or October, uh, it's, it's until September 31st, students can, can postpone payments. Um, and so we basically said, students, you get like a little holiday on making your payments, but you're still responsible for, for repaying your loans. Uh, but for colleges, we just gave them, gave them money. And so, so a Pell student uh, basically doesn't have to make loan payments for, for a series of months, five, six months. Uh, but the college they went to gets $1,400 to $2,000. Um, and so that, that seems a little strange to me, um, particularly because higher education exists uh, for the students. Um, and so the students seem to be getting forgotten about in a lot of these discussions. Uh, and then the, the, the kind of continuing conversation about higher education bailouts is even worse. Uh, so, so right now, higher education is asking for about 47 billion, which, if you add it to the 14 billion in the in the CARES Act, that would be about 10% of of higher education funding that, that uh, they're asking for. Um, at the same time, they're projecting an enrollment decline of up to 15%. So they're asking for a bailout that's going to maintain their existing kind of revenue amount uh, while educating 15% fewer students. Um, if you're able to pull that off, I need to talk to you about my negotiating tactics with, with my boss because I would love to work 15% less and get paid the exact same amount. Like that would be that would be fantastic. Um, but it's not very realistic, especially when the rest of the country is really, really hurting uh, as well. Um, and so, so my my main uh, concern on on kind of what I see going on in the policy space right now. Is, is all this conversation around bailouts and how much they should be, uh, and not enough uh, attention being paid to uh, who should be getting the help. And I think the, the people that should be getting the help are the students uh, and not the institutions. And, and I think that for, for a couple of reasons. So, so number one, the, the way federal financial aid already works, we've already got built-in mechanisms to adjust a student's financial aid based on new circumstances. So if that student is newly unemployed, they're automatically already going to be eligible for more Pell Grants, for more student loans. Uh, and so we don't need to, to reinvent the wheel. We've already got a financial aid system that, that accounts for, uh, for, for student financial need. Uh, and this is, this is, I think, one of the, the key advantages of the, the federal financial aid program relative to, say, uh, state funding mechanisms, which tend to go directly to uh, uh, institutions, Colorado accepted. <laughs> um, and so, so I, th I, I think that's, that's kind of the first advantage is that um, we should rely on the, the, the tools that we already have in the federal financial aid program because they already do what we want them to do, which is funnel more support to students whose situations have changed and that need more support. Now. Uh, the second reason I, I really think that, the, that any sort of additional funding should go to, to students and not to institutions is that it preserves flexibility. Um, and what I mean by flexibility is, is what we were talking about uh, uh, with enrollment earlier. Like some, some people are projecting that we get 15% uh, fewer enrollment, but we could very well see an increase in enrollment. If we've got you know, 40 extra million unemployed people sitting around, they may actually start enrolling in colleges uh, to try and upgrade their, uh, their, their skills. Uh, and so, so fundamentally, we don't really know what's gonna happen to enrollment in the fall. We don't even know which colleges are going to be open. We have some colleges like Purdue that, that are kind of committed to, to being open. Uh, the whole California State University system has already committed to being just online. Uh, and we don't know how students are going to react. Are students going to be safe, feel, feel comfortable uh, going to in-person classes on Purdue? Or are students going to be so annoyed with the online education at California State University that they, they, they don't enroll? Um, and and so, we, so we just don't know. Uh, and so it seems premature to, to settle on a dollar amount for institutions uh, because we, we, we just don't know how many students are, are they're, they're, they're gonna be responsible for. 
And so providing the money to students instead avoids that problem uh, because it basically provides the support for all the students who show up and it doesn't provide support for students who don't show up, which is, which is very nice. Uh, the other the other kind of aspect of, of flexibility that I think is really, really important right now uh, is that we really don't know what the long-term impact of this is going to be on kind of traditional higher education. And so if if everything, you know, a year from now is back to normal and kids are going to to, uh, to, to campuses like, the, like they were four years ago, um, then, okay, yeah, then then probably the, the existing higher education institution uh, should 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 kind of be supported to to survive, uh, but if we're going to be facing this virus for a long time before a cure or before effective treatment, or if it just comes back, if it keeps mutating and and comes back every year like the flu, well, all of a sudden maybe we don't need to be spending all these resources preserving an old set of institutions that may not be adequately. Uh, designed to to produce the education that we need for uh, for for kind of a new normal, uh, and so so if you if if you fund the institutions, you're basically going to use a lot of those resources that could be used to lay the lay the infrastructure and the lay the foundations of new educational institutions. You're going to be using that just maintaining the old uh, institutions. So for me, the the mistake here is is sort of like the the airline bailouts, right? Like we gave something like fifty billion dollars to the airlines. Well, why? Like, what did that do? That just postponed uh, the inevitable. And the, the only scenario in which case that made sense is if everything goes back to normal, right as the bailout money is running out, and we feel like those airlines were, were worth saving. Uh, whereas in actuality, just because an airline goes bankrupt doesn't mean the planes cease to exist. Like the planes would be bought by somebody else in bankruptcy, they'd still fly. And so, so to me, bailing out uh, higher education would be a lot like bailing out the airlines. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense um, uh, because we don't know what the what the future holds for for these particular institutions. And then the last uh, the last real advantage I think of of funding uh, students rather than the the institutions is that it increases competition. Um, so there's on, on one level there is plenty of competition within higher education. There's something like four thousand degree granting institutions. Um, but on another level, uh, there's not very much competition because a lot of that competition doesn't actually uh, take place along the, the, the price and the quality dimensions that we see in almost every other industry. And there's a lot of reasons for that. There's, there's uh, a, a, a much, much more panel uh, discussion to, to go into that. Uh, but suffice to say that more competition is, is, is generally benefiting students. Uh, because it helps keep institutions accountable, and it makes sure that uh, the options that are available to students are the ones that satisfy their needs as as well as uh, can be expected. Uh, and so, with that, I will I will stop. Great, thank you, Dr. Gillen. So that is something that I would say applies from kindergarten all the way through grad school, right? We should be funding students and not institutions. So well said there. Uh, before we get into a moderated Q&A, we have one final interactive poll question for you. Okay, what is the total amount of cumulative student loan debt held by Americans today? Is it 500 billion, 1.1 trillion, 1.6 trillion, or $2 trillion? Okay, as we're wrapping that up, I'd like to get into a few questions of my own that I have for the panelists. But before doing that, are we able to see the poll results? Can I see what those results are? And then I will give you correct answers. So on our first poll that we had, if you remember back, what percentage of Americans age 25 and older currently hold a bachelor's degree? Uh, it looks like our audience was incredibly smart and 46% of you had the right response is 35% of Americans today age 25 and older currently hold a bachelor's degree. So give yourself a gold star if you got that correct. Next question. 
right, then we said, who should be responsible for paying off a student loan? And this was just uh, interesting to ask the audience. 89% uh, of you, nearly 90% responded that the student who took out the loan should be responsible for paying off that loan. 11% of you thought that taxpayers should play some role in student loan forgiveness. Very interesting there. We could get the next question. We'll get the answer to that. Okay, this, this I think was the hardest one. How many Americans older than 62 have student loan debt? Uh, the uh, response that got the most answers uh, was 200,000 Americans, 36% of you said that. The correct answer, uh, this was the first one that, that our audience uh, got wrong, the correct answer was 2 million. So 2 million Americans age 62 or older currently have student loan debt, uh, but a quarter of you got that right. So another gold star there. And then if we could pull up the final question. Very good. Uh, what is the total amount of cumulative student loan debt held by Americans today? Half of you, exactly 50%, got that right. It's $1.6 trillion today in outstanding student loan debt. If we could return back to our panelists, uh, anybody want to weigh in on, on some of those questions? Really interesting food for thought. Um, Dr. Polykoff, I know we were talking a little bit before we uh, got going today on, on that question of, you know, uh, Americans age 62 and older, 2 million, it's actually, uh, I think you said closer to 3 million now Americans over the age of 62 still have student loan debt. What, what should we make of that? It, it really is an obscenity. Uh, we're talking over $86 billion of debt uh, on the shoulders of people who are over 60. And it, it takes me back to something that has always bothered me. Um, the late William Bowen, among others, argued that uh, it's good debt, that taking out a big parent plus loan or taking out a um, personal loan that will, that may actually follow for the rest of a person's life is good debt. Well, no, and that kind of gets back to a point that um, Dr. Spaulding was raising. What's in that degree? Um, when we look at our figures for core collegiate skills compared to other nations, we're below average. And that's going to have a real impact on earning capacity. So as part of this reset for higher education, let's trim the degree down to fewer credit hours, get a real core curriculum that imparts real skills in math and science and knowledge of American history and writing skills, cut out the fluff, and cut back on the amount of money that students are gonna borrow. Yeah, and I'll just follow up with you on that, Dr. Polykoff, because we have an audience question I'll bring in now from Hannah. And she asked uh, you specifically, uh, Dr. Polykoff, you mentioned cutting services to get more money to divert to instruction. Can you give some examples of, of what services you might suggest cutting? Oh, there quite a lot and I, I do say this uh, trying to be sensitive to the fact that students do come to campus with a whole lot of needs that were probably not so apparent uh, when I was going through college in the um, dark ages but uh, having said all that let's get back to primary mission which is uh, what no other sector provides or provides as well which is training for career and preparation for citizenship so, for example, I, I mentioned Berkeley's Office of Equity and Inclusion. Those are wonderful things um, and perfectly um, good goal to cultivate them. But if one has to choose between scholarship assistance that brings disadvantaged students to the possibility of getting a college degree and funding bureaucrats who are writing memos about microaggressions, I think the choice is really very clear. And we can drill down into some of the amenities as well. Um, did LSU really need a 1.7, I think, million dollar lazy river with the initials of LSU? Uh, every time a building is built, you can count that on another 70% of the cost of construction and maintenance over its lifetime. These are all things that may be quite nice, but are not essential. Right now, we only have money for the essentials. That's the catalyst of reform that the COVID-19 pandemic has thrust upon us. 
So Wait, I think the, I'm sorry, go ahead. You know, I was saying, Michael's absolutely right about that, but I, I even go farther, uh, which is say, you know, these things aren't nice things. These things are destroying the universities and colleges, the things he's talking about that are absorbing a lot of this money. Look, the, the practical reason why Hillsdale College can keep its, its tuition about half of, of, of other places uh, is because we don't have all that nonsense. We don't track our kids by race. We don't do all that stuff. Uh, we focus on our mission and our core, and uh, we, we're, we're doing it economically, and we provide uh, uh, our own loans and our own student scholarships, including scholarships, inner city kids in the name of Frederick Douglass scholarships. I mean, it's doable. That's the point. It's, it's possible. We should be incentivizing other schools to move in this direction. If we had a free market, that's the way it would happen, uh, and, and we would be incentivizing that. But instead, the, all, all the money in the system and the, the uh, kind of the elite way of thinking about this is to lock this system to place in which there's, there, there's almost monopolistic control, um, and you don't allow the kind of innovation that in this period of all periods should be uh, a rethinking of how we go about uh, producing this types of education. I mean, Michael's point, I think, is, is, is right. Although I would put it more in terms of we need to have various options for the type of education. Uh, we need to preserve and strengthen higher education, but then we should have other options for other people. I mean, Harvey Mansfield years ago had a great idea when we asked him, you know, what do we do at higher education? Uh, his proposal was to reinvigorate junior college. And we, we've lost the distinction anymore between levels of education in our higher education system. And a lot of what we have today is nonsense that goes under the term higher education. And this should be a, a, a time when we should, uh, some of that should filter out and let the market decide some of it probably should go away in my opinion yeah and uh, miss Gunnell, i mean we've talked about this uh you and i too program prioritization right i know this is something that that you've thought about um so maybe you can touch on on how you're thinking about this larger question and what's blocking that from happening yeah i, I think you're spot on matthew and part of the problem as a region or trustee is that we can't we don't have access to um, accurate data and financials to make those tough decisions. Uh, it's a lot of, uh, it's very complex. They keep it complex. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors. You know, here's a PowerPoint that talks about what our expenses are. You know, as a CEO, I need the actual detail and to go in and, and see what the return on investment is on these programs. Um, you know, same with diversity. If, if, if you truly want diversity, you've got to look at how you're spending your money, what you're investing your dollars in and what the return on investment are. Are you actually moving the needle? And it's very difficult to get those answers to even make the first steps towards, you know, cutting expenses. On the workforce side, um, you know, like I said, employers are going to take this on themselves if higher ed doesn't do it quickly. So digital badging, which is like Girl Scout, Boy Scout badges that um, are specifically focused on one skill set or expertise that you can go on LinkedIn as an employer and search by digital badges to get a complete set of skills and, and expertise for a position that you're hiring for. The focus on lifelong learning. Employers want um, employees that want to keep learning. And that may be through um, you know, micro-credentialing by MOOCs. Um, there's all kinds of different ways that they can do that versus going back and getting an MBA. So I think um, the innovators, in education and employers who are innovative are going to skirt around higher ed if higher ed doesn't get on board and make some dramatic changes very quickly. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. We had a, a quick question here. Uh, did the poll include Parent PLUS loans? So I, I think you're probably, I, I don't know if that's referring to the poll on the 1.6 trillion and outstanding or of those 62 and older who hold debt, but either way the answer is yes, that that does include Parent PLUS as well. Um, if you don't know the PLUS loan program, it's a, a large federal program. It's part of that large um, um, grouping of student loans that the federal government, federal taxpayers underwrite today. The federal government uh, originates and services 90% of all student loans today. Parent PLUS loans go to parents to pay for uh, the undergrad tuition uh, of their children. And so you do end up with parents carrying those Parent PLUS loans, unfortunately, uh, late in life. Um, I'll throw another question out to our panelists. Uh, I'm not sure, maybe uh, Dr. Gillen or uh, whoever wants to take this, it's great, but we have a question on the National Association of Scholars report that they put out about any subsequent additional bailout, any emergency federal funding 
that might come out. Uh, the association had recommended to principals for guiding that money that uh, universities must significantly reform their unsustainable finances, uh, primarily by reducing administrative overhead 50% or more, and they must adhere to American principles of freedom and avoid activities that threaten American national interests. Any feedback on that opinion there? Thank you for that question. Great question. So I, I think those are both great principles and, and I really think there's little harm in attaching those uh, requirements to any sort of bailout that, that comes to higher education institutions. Where I think I get pessimistic is I don't think either of those are going to have any any influence on, on institutions, especially in the long term. Um, and so so there's a, a, a few kind of ref education reform types uh, in, in DC who like saying, you can make people do something, uh, but you can't make them do it well. And I, and I think that would really apply in particular to attaching kind of the, the American principles, the, the, the founding principles. Um, you can make people teach, you know, American civics. Um, you can't make them do it well. Um, and and if you get if you have, you know, a couple hundred thousand instructors and in, in classes that are that are doing their own thing, um, that class could easily devolve into into kind of the opposite of of, of what you're intending. Because um, one of the one of the great things about higher education is that once you're in the classroom, uh, instructors have amazing flexibility to teach. What they think is the most important uh, for that particular topic, um, and so so I think that is one of the strengths. Like there's not some national curriculum uh, within within any field within higher education, um, but one of the consequences of that is that you can't really expect very good results if you if you do try to uh, uh, require a certain topic be covered. If I could add, there, there's actually um, at least one very good model for how this can work, namely. Florida State University system of Florida uh, through a legislative initiative uh, there's some pretty clear language that in their civics course um, students will acquire knowledge of the founding documents of major Supreme Court cases um, it's not intrusive but it gives the kind of guidance for the sort of thing that everybody who leaves college ought to know and we have a few states that actually do specify study of the state constitution, study of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, you know, ultimately, I, uh, it really is something that every institution needs to do, and it's much better if it comes from within the institution. But since this is taxpayer money, when we're talking about public higher education, there is a reasonable public interest that can be asserted and ought to be asserted. And ditto for freedom of speech on campus, just as um, you know, people who want federal grants need to certify that it's a drug-free workplace. It seems very reasonable to say that the United States Constitution will be respected. Now, how that will be enforced is, of course, another issue. But at least that is a reasonable assertion that allows for some kind of oversight. Great. So, yeah, the, the, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dr. Spalding. We also have an extremely good example of a terrible, uh, terrible model at the federal level, which was the Bird, uh, the Bird Amendment uh, a number of years ago that said uh, you can't get any federal funds unless uh, the, the college or university does something appropriate for Constitution Day, which, of course, they all now use to attack the Constitution on a regular basis. So I, I think Michael is, is right in the sense the way to teach them about constitutional principles is actually to enforce constitutional principles. And, and like I said at the beginning, we shouldn't be doing anything with these schools if they don't protect and preserve free speech, uh, freedom of assembly, and, and religious liberty. Those are, those are the three constitutional uh, protections that uh, essentially the legs of academic freedom in this country. And if they're not going to protect those things, they should receive no money from the federal government. So we have, uh, I think, time for one last audience question. We have an um, interesting, intriguing, provocative question here from Anthony uh, at the James G. Martin Center, Anthony Hennon. So he says, with so many students not earning a degree or credential, but taking on debt, should we question how open and accessible colleges really are? Graduation rates aren't everything, but many colleges struggle to help students achieve their goals. 
you know, at what point is this doing more harm than good? How can we pressure colleges to do better? Big question. Well, if I, I may, I, I don't want to monopolize the time, but I think looking to Arizona State University is a very good idea. Um, Michael Crow has really emphasized the different modalities of teaching and has emphasized the, the very principle that exclusivity is not what universities ought to be aiming at. It is success. He's worked hard to eliminate bottleneck courses uh, and to, especially to make the STEM fields more accessible. This is taking a lot of innovation in curriculum. And when that gets wedded uh, to a point that the American Council of Trustees and Alumni has already <laughs> has always emphasized, namely, get that core of skills, then people progress properly and they graduate ready for work and ready to be citizens. Well, yeah. I, I think Anthony's question is great because there are so many students who uh you know enroll in colleges and they don't really get much out of it um my only hesitation is using a i basically want to go in the same direction michael was saying like the goal is success and and, and you know educational attainment um whether or not that's tracked by by graduation i don't really care like we, we could go in heidi's direction where instead of doing like a, a bachelor's degree you acquire a series of badges like that would be really great uh, because maybe right now in my career, I need to know how to do, you know, these four things. I can go enroll in the in courses that teach me how to do those four things. I get my 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 badge or my certi certificate, and that that's that's kind of like lifelong learning that that kind of uh, is is delivered right as I need it, um, rather than you know 20 years in the past. Um, and so so. Uh, I do worry about the graduation rates because it is kind of the one metric we have about uh, how students are doing. Um, but at the same time, I think we need to keep it in context. Like, you know, like nobody really worries that like half of PhD students drop out, uh, and and so the graduation rates are like PhD programs in general, right? No, nobody really worries about that because this is basically just that's uh, it, basically just the students saying, you know what, this isn't for me. Um, and 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 it, it's not a huge problem, even though the the graduation rate is low. The the um, well, I, I, again, I, I think we sometimes look at the problem the wrong way. Right? We keep focusing on the things that everyone else wants us to focus on. These, these things are uh, were are actually quite important around the edges. We we watch these metrics, of course, but the bigger question is here is I I think we need to be thinking about how to divide. Uh, higher education in different types of categories. There are different types of schools. There are different types of education uh, that ought to be preserved in their own way, according to different different methods in a different structure. The problem is, that I think modern uh, modern uh, the modern academy, uh, growing out of kind of the the old German model and and, and modern liberalism, has become extremely centralized and um, uh, undynamic and is prone to fads in all needs to be broken down as much as possible so we have more innovation more schools doing what they do best and deciding what their mission is picking on their mission uh, and giving students one size fits all system and we got to somehow face and fix the system too much nowadays we're talking about systemic problems. This is another example. This is not, this is a systemic problem. We should break it up uh, into its parts, but not think about it systemically. Great, well, that's a, a great note to end on. Uh, we had lots and lots of additional audience questions, everything from what percentage athletics play into these just outstanding higher education costs that we see today to how exactly these mergers and acquisitions Dr. Spalding talked about would actually happen with colleges and universities. So really appreciate everybody being here. Appreciate all of our panelists coming today. We got great perspectives from the public higher ed sector, the private uh, sector. Uh, Dr. Gillen, thank you for all of your thoughts on federal reform. And Dr. Polyakov, as always, thank you for painting the picture of, of where we are today and how much reform is actually needed. Thank you all for joining us. And again, this will be online 
uh, in about 48 hours if you'd like to, to rewatch it or send it around. Thank you. Thank you, Lindsay. Thanks. Thank you.